The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. verses 1 through 4, and uh, chapter 24, verses 13 through 15. Inasmuch as have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Philophus, that you may have certainly concerning the things you have been taught. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They went at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going uh, going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us to the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened to them on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of their bread. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you that you are with us this morning by your Spirit, through the very presence of your Son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, you are the living Word. Lord, would you drive the reality of this into our hearts. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, just as you did the disciples on the road to Emmaus. 
Help us open your word to us that we might understand and that our hearts might burn as well with love for Jesus. Oh God, would you come and meet us at the point of our skepticism? Would you meet the evil one this morning who's been very much at work? Oh God, I pray that your will would be done. I pray that we, your people, would be blessed through your word this morning. You know I need your strength. I depend upon it wholly. And I do so in Jesus' name. Amen. So last uh, Saturday, the University of Memphis defeated UCLA, and uh, an incredible game it was, and a great game last night. Uh, U of M's on a roll. It's so good to see after such a long drought. Um, and yet, it was so good to watch our defense pursuing Josh Rosen, one of the highly touted, I mean, they're saying he's going to be a first-round draft pick um, in the draft and um, NFL and so forth. So um, it was so good to see his second interception. Uh, he made uh, two, and the second one was in the fourth quarter, and, and UCLA was down, and they really needed, they were getting to the red zone, and a lot of pressure was put on Josh Rosen, and he threw it, and the receiver wasn't even, the receiver was still running so easy pick and um, you know it was great but the commentator it was so funny the commentator said well there must have been some miscommunication between the quarterback and his intended receiver and I was like that's the most obvious thing you could possibly say uh, ever as we come to this whole question of can we trust the Bible um, I think today there's been some miscommunication and just as that miscommunication in the UCLA game uh, cost them the game between Josh Rosen and his intended receiver, it's costing the church a lot because of the uh, miscommunication. God has spoke clearly. God has given us his word. The church through the ages has believed. Orthodox Christians through the ages have believed that this is God's word. And yet today, we think we can pick and choose what we want. We think we can shelve some things and uh, that cultural expectations and um, so forth. Can, we can change God's word. And because of that, the church is hurting. And yet, as we've been seeing in the book of Ephesians, the way that the church is going to be uh, the body of Christ is by a, a high commitment to the word of God. And it's not some, you know, it's not some self-righteous knowledge thing, so, you know, I can know more than you, or, you know, we're all kind of competing. No. It's, as Paul tells us, he gives us his word that we might speak truth in love to each other. And that's what builds the body up. He tells us in Ephesians 4 that uh, God gave apostles and prophets and teachers for the building up of the body of Christ. Not for Bible competition, not, but for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. So we speak truth, we encourage each other, we bring God's love to each other. We encourage. Did you encourage anybody this week after last sermon? I got a couple of emails of, of just that. People encouraging one another. I was on a text stream with my family. I was able to encourage uh, one of our daughters who uh, was facing you know, a, a long interview. And 
Are we inc- we're speaking truth in love. We're building each other up through God's Word, using it as the foundation. But here's the reality. You have to know the truth to speak the truth. And today, biblical illiteracy is on the rise. It's through the roof. That's why we're doing the Equip Hour. That's why we preach through the Bible and not just ideas of men. Because this is the foundation of our unity. It's by having a common agreement of what the Bible teaches and what is the core essential reality of our salvation and foundation of our salvation that that unites us. And that's why Paul begins in Ephesians 1 and 2 reminding us of the great salvation, the gospel. He said, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and uh, sins in which you formerly lived, but God made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you've been saved. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Salvation by grace through faith. This is the foundation of our life as a church. Paul fights. Paul says, yes, you can know what the Bible's about. Yes, you can know what the truth of God's Word is. There is one gospel. The good news is one message. It's not whatever you want it to be or whatever your truth is in the moment. Paul is arguing for the gospel in Galatia. And he's addressing the false teachers and he's addressing the church. And he says, you've turned to a different gospel. But then he says this. He says, um, not that there is another. In other words, there's only one gospel. Not that there is another. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Agreement over what the content of the gospel is, who Jesus is, what he's done for you and me. This is the power of our unity in the church. That's why we have to believe passages like 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 that says, but the word um, of all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that we might be self-righteous in our Bible knowledge. and No, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That we might serve each other. Now, I know some of you are in here this morning and you're, you're thinking, is there really a group of people that still believes that this Bible is the very Word of God? Are there really people like that today? With all the technology and... And I want to tell you, yes. Uh, Because His Word is the foundation for our community life and our unity together. And common agreement is what binds us. And that is why God has given us His Word. So it's important that we believe the authority and the inerrancy and and, and the uh, God-breathedness of His Word. And so this morning I want to help us. I'm going to put some, some, some stuff in your hands that, that I hope will convince you if you don't believe and I hope will uh, maybe deepen your faith if you do believe that the Bible is God's Word. And so I want to t- uh, tell us this morning that we can trust the Scriptures uh, historically, culturally, and personally. 
they are reliable both historically, culturally, and personally. And uh, I listened, there are three, I, you know, I've looked at commentaries and all that, but Tim Keller preached three different sermons, and I'm relying heavily on several parts of this sermon. So if some of you have listened to Keller's sermons, I don't want anybody to say, well, he, you know, I'm giving him credit on the front end. Uh, uh, I, I used uh, primarily those three sermons, and we're going to deal with a lot of other things next week. But let's look at it. We've got to roll. The Bible can be trusted historically. Obviously, many say today that the Bible is just a myth. The Bible, is, it's just legend. We can't know if it historically is accurate. Well, I want to push against that because my contention is that it is historically accurate. And, and uh, here are three reasons you can trust the Bible historically. Number one, the New Testament uh, accounts of Jesus were written way too early to be legends. If you, The reason we read Luke 1 is because Luke is telling us this is a history that I'm giving you. I'm not giving you some myth or le- This is history. I am. Luke was a historian. He wrote the book of Acts. He, he was very much about facts. And he um, uh, is about giving an accurate history that you may have certainty, verse 4, concerning the things that you've been taught. Um, and... and, and, and Both the Gospels and Paul's letters, um, the whole New Testament, was written so early that the things that it proposes would have been easy to uh, diminish. It would have been easy to prove wrong because it was so close. If these letters were written 200 years after the fact, then there was no way to prove it wrong. But Paul was writing 15 to 20 years after the facts, after the claims that he's making. see that in 1 Corinthians 13 where he talks about the resurrection and he says there are 500 people. 500 people saw it. Go ask them if you don't believe me. And, and that's really the thrust of it, that it was written too early. Um, and even the claims that were made early on were that Jesus is the Son of God and God Himself. Uh, we see it in John 1, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, the Word was made flesh and made His dwelling among us. These claims were written from the beginning. And yet, several years ago, um, um, Brown, what was that guy's name, wrote the Da Vinci Code. Um, there we go, Dan Brown wrote the Da Vinci Code, which is fiction. Um, and... It caused a big stir in the church and everybody just kind of, oh man, the Bible can't be trusted because of the Da Vinci Code, which was fictioned in the first place. And one contention it made was that Constantine, in the year 325, declared the deity of, of God. And that is just not the truth. I mean, the Bible was written way before 325, and uh, one historian brings it, bring, says this. He said, uh, Dan Brown says, when the Emperor Constantine declared Jesus divine, Christianity won the religious competition in the Roman Empire by an exercise of power rather than by any attraction it exerted. In actual historical fact, the church had already uh, won that competition long before it had any power when it was still under sporadic persecution. If a historian were cynical, he would say Constantine chose Christianity because it had already won and he wanted to back a winner. But New Testament documents are written too early for them to be myth and for them to be legend. Um, Secondly, the documents are too counterproductive in their content to be legend. 
I, I mean, you have Jesus in the garden saying to his father, um, may this cup pass from me. You've got Jesus trying to wriggle, wiggle out of the saving the, God's people. Um, I mean, who in the world in their right mind would make that up that Jesus, the Son of God, is disagreeing? And on the cross, what does he cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you realize in Islam, that would have been, you know, heretical uh, to question God, to question Allah. No, but this is way too counterproductive. I mean, what is written is way too counterproductive. And look at verses 10 through 12. I don't know if you noticed it. The presence of the women. In every gospel account, women are the first-hand um, um, witnesses. The whole thing rests on the witness of women. Do you understand culturally that women were not allowed to testify in a court of law in that time? So who in their right mind would base the whole truth of the resurrection and the resurrected Jesus on the testimony of women when nobody in the culture respected the testimony of women? Why would you do that unless it were true? So we see this um, in uh, Luke 24, 10 through 12. And then thirdly, they are too detailed in their form to be legends. Um, legends and myth. I don't, you know, I hated like ancient literature stuff in high school, college, Beowulf. I'm like, why do I have to read this stuff? You know? Um, legend, myth, uh, Greek mythology, and so forth. If, if um, historical narrative and the whole idea of, of realistic narrative, of um, you know uh, fiction, if you will, didn't come about as an artistic or a, liter- a literary um, thing until like the 18th century. And so C.S. Lewis points this out. C.S. Lewis was professor of English at, um, I think it was Cambridge, I think he taught at Cambridge, Cambridge and Oxford, but um, just an expert, world-renowned expert on ancient literature. This is what he said. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this, talking about the scriptures. Of the gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is historical reportage or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this simply has not learned how to read. Uh, (laughs) What do you really think, C.S. Lewis? Uh, He's like, this is not, I mean, this is history. This is written as history. And it must be taken as history. All right? So we can trust them historically. But secondly, we can trust them culturally. And I know I'm going fast because um, I don't have much time and I really want to get... I really want to get all of it in, so keep up with me, and that's why we put our sermons online. Uh, you'll be able to get this if you really. Uh, but secondly, they are too detailed. Or excuse me, um, you can trust them culturally, and I really wanted to spend some time on this because today we say, okay, many of the claims of the Bible are just regressive. I mean, we can't go back to some of the teachings of the Bible, okay? All right, let's deal with that. First of all, when you come to something that offends you, when you come to something that's like, there's just no way that can be true because it offends your cultural sensibilities. 
All right? Um, Three things that we need to do. First, we need to consider that the text doesn't teach what you think it's teaching. We see this in the the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Um, You know, they think that the, all the prophets have made the, the claim that Jesus, you know, the Messiah is going to come, He's going to set up His earthly throne in the midst of Jerusalem, and everybody will bow before Him, and we'll have this great King, and He'll reign, and God's people will be on top forever. And so they're believing this about Jesus, and what happens? Jesus dies. And so in our text, we find them walking back sad. That's what the text said. They're forlorn. They're sad. Why? Because they have misread the whole Old Testament. Understandably so. Because how could they know? I mean, it's easy for us to go back and say, well, it was right there. Look at Isaiah 53. Look at... But come on, we're on this side, not on that side. So they were misreading the Bible. And friends, we all do that. And here's, here's one thing. If you read the book of Genesis and you read the Old Testament, if you are not a little taken back by how men are treating women, um, something's wrong with you. Uh, you know, there's polygamy in Genesis, right? There's polygamy all throughout the Old Testament. And, 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 and we say, well, there it is. I mean, how could the Bible be? I mean, how could you take the Bible literally? There was polygamy, you know, primogeniture. This is the whole idea that you know the firstborn child, the firstborn son, has more rights than any of the other children. All right. And if you read through Genesis, all of this just comes out. You've got Abraham giving his wife away. You've got buying and selling women. You know, polygamy puts men on top uh, in a position of utter authority. Without you know, it's it's horrible. All right, but. Robert Alter, in his book, The Art of Biblical Narrative, um, he's a Berkeley professor, a Jewish um, scholar. He wrote this. He said this. He said, there are two institutions that you see in Genesis that were universal in the culture. In the culture, all right? Polygamy and primogeniture. It's the, you know, the oldest child gets everything, all right? However... When you actually read the text of Genesis, you see two things. First, in every generation, polygamy reaps havoc. Yeah, it's it's counting that they have more wives, but it's not overturning what God said in Genesis uh, one. You know, um, the man will leave, or Genesis two, the man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I mean, that's clear. All right, so detailing the reality of polygamy in uh, the, you know, the patriarchs, uh, the lives of the patriarch, is not supporting it. Um, but in, in every generation, having multiple wives is an absolute disaster. Culturally, socially, relationally, familiarly, spiritually, psychologically, in every way. Secondly, when it comes to primogeniture, in every single generation, God always favors the youngest son over the older. So God's breaking his own rules. If, why? Because God is a God of justice. It's always Abel, not Cain, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau. If you realize what Genesis is doing, you will notice that it is subverting, not supporting those ancient patriarchal institutions at every spot. Uh, if you don't realize that, you don't know how to read. Uh, I, don't, I guess he and... He and Lewis are in, you know, cahoots together, I guess. They're just intellectual, arrogant people. Uh, and here's what's so important about this. 
What if you had tri- what if you give up on the Bible because of polygamy being present in the Bible? Then you're going to miss Jesus. <laughs> I mean, what if you are misreading? Why is the first thing you go to? Oh, Bible can't be true. I'll tell you why. Because at the deepest part of our soul is a desire to be independent of God. If you go to the garden, you see that all of humanity goes off track through what? The devil saying this. The serpent saying this. Did God really say? And he did it with a smirk. We've dealt with this many times. We looked at it. He did it with a smirk. <laughs> did God really say? I don't know about you, man, but I don't like to be publicly humiliated and looked down upon. But I'm telling you, most of the arguments that I hear from people are done with a smirk. Oh, you don't really believe in one man, one woman. You don't. Come on. It's always a smirk. It's not, there's no intellectual credibility. There's always a smirk. Why? Because it's so effective. And that's exactly uh, what we see. Um, and then secondly, please understand or consider the possibility that you're misunderstanding what the Bible's teaching because of your own cultural blinders. The, the, the Emmaus disciples are Jewish, so it's absolutely understandable why they're looking for the Jewish Messiah. However, God is not just seeking to save the Jews. What, what, is, his, what is His agenda? For God so loved the Jews that He gave His only begotten Son. No, that's the whole radical nature and direction of the New Covenant. For God so loved the world. Jews weren't thinking about the world. The Jews were thinking about the nation of Israel. They're like, we want a king. We want to be on top. And yet God's heart was not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile alike. And that was the beauty of the New Testament gospel. And that's still his heart, you see. But they're reading it through their cultural lenses. And man, has this gotten people in trouble. Alright, let's take a couple of them. Uh, Like... Slavery. If you go, you know, we've been basing uh, a lot of our tech or our uh, sermon series on the church and the Bible through Ephesians. If you go to Ephesians 6, you read, Bond servants or slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he's a bondservant or is free, masters do the same to them. Okay, well, here you go. We can't trust this thing. It, it supports the institution of slavery. Let's back up a little bit. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Does the Bible really do that? Well, we're going to get to it. Southern Christians, many Southern even ministers, we're going to talk about some in a minute, um, did use it, but they were reading the Scriptures through their cultural lenses, not Scripture. I mean, it's an easy case to utterly obliterate this whole notion that the Bible um, supports slavery. You say, well, there it is right there. Slaves obey your masters. Okay. Do you understand that this was written before the African slave trade? Yes. All right. So let's put that 
over here, African slave trade, slavery, modern, uh, you know, well, not modern today, but American slavery, all right? Put that over there because this was way before. There was something, there was a relationship master to slave, but it was purely um, a, a, a merciful provision for uh, extremely poor people. And there was structure to it. It's kind of like, okay, Richard is never going to have $150,000 in cash to go buy a house. So what does the bank do? It makes me their slave. It says, okay, we'll give you $150,000 and you're going to pay it back with interest over time. Okay? In a sense, I don't own my house. The bank owns my house. I'm their, I'm their indentures. I'm working for them. They can take it away from me. <laughs> I'm working for them. Well, in, in the economy of, of, of Israel, God had this thing called indenture servitude. If you look at Exodus um, uh, 27 and I think like through um, I think 31 and so forth, you see this provision where um, there can be this relationship where someone can um, come under another person and work and own land and get you know get off the ground, begin to develop economic resources. But there was a provision there that after six years, in the seventh year, then that land, all that debt had to be forgiven by, uh, by the master. And so, you know, it, it's not, it, it's totally different from African slave trade. Uh, it wasn't race-based. It wasn't, it was just like, hey, this is a way that you can get off the ground. And, um, you know, if, if we look at the... Um, um, you know, the African slave trade, it was, um, you know, the basis of it was kidnapping, which the Bible clearly condemns in First Peter, or excuse me, First Timothy 1, 9 through 11 and Deuteronomy 24, 7. Um, kidnapping. It was also race-based um, and, and utterly evil. Why? Because God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. At the foundation of all biblical theology is this reality that we are all, it doesn't matter what color our skin, how much pigmentation is in our our skin, it doesn't matter. We are all made in the image of God and have inherent worth. Why? Because we're made in His image. And we're all level, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet all are justified freely by His grace. There is no racial um, um, you know, segregation or prejudice on the part of God. It came to the Jews first, but only that the world might be blessed. Only that the nations might be blessed. Okay? Um, Murray Harris, a historian, talked about the kind of slavery that existed when Paul was writing this. And he points out four very solid things that we need to hear. Number one, the slaves that the Bible's talking about in the first century, Greco-Roman world, were not distinguishable from anyone else by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived like everyone else and were never segregated off from society in any way. Slaves were more educated than their owners in many cases and in many times held high managerial positions. From a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and were themselves not poor and often accrued enough personal capital to buy themselves out. 
Very few persons were slaves for life in the first century. Most expected to be freed after about 10 years or by their late 30s. Now, we're not talking about Israel slavery. We're talking about Greco-Roman slavery kind of stuff. That's why Paul is giving regulation. Okay? So, the Bible does not in any form support what happened in the 1600s to the 1800s African uh, slave trade. There is no way that you can make that argument. And yet you say, well, some did, and they did. And that's my next thing, is this whole theological distortion and heresy called the curse of Ham. Now, the southern church... um, um, white church did put forth this theological argument that in Genesis 9, when Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, you know, um, heard about uh, their father Noah getting stone drunk and passing out naked in his tent, that Ham goes in and sees him in his nakedness, and he's cursed because of it. Yet. Uh, Shem and uh, um, Japheth, they walk backwards with a covering and cover their father, and they're not, you know. So Ham is cursed, and it says that, you know, his generation or his, um, uh, you know, his, his um, children and so forth are going to be slaves to the others, his brothers. And so. <laughs> Uh, these, some southern ministers concocted this, this um, theory that the descendants of Ham became, um, you know, migrated to Africa and therefore they are destined for slavery. I mean, there's absolutely no biblical support, I mean, zero. And yet, that's what they, um, and what, what were they doing? They were reading the scriptures through their cultural lenses, trying to justify what their hearts wanted. And it was evil. And friends, we all do that. We all do that. We all want to push against the Bible. We all want to make it say what we want it to say because it's going to fit us culturally and it's going to benefit us where we are. Did you know, and I was shocked, I did not know a lot of this, but uh, Chriswell, um, uh, the first Baptist pastor for years in Dallas, uh, Chriswell, and he had a study Bible. Did you know that he uh, embraced this in the 50s and 60s? It was even in the Chriswell study Bible, this curse of Ham theology, through 1979. But he finally came out and said, I was utterly deluded. And he repented of this theological error that had horrible, horrible impact on others. Friends, if we take anything from this, we need to understand that it is nothing but dangerous to read the Scriptures through our cultural lenses as opposed to getting under the authority of the Scriptures and really understanding what it's saying to us. Um, And then thirdly in this, you may be getting offended by certain texts because of the unexamined assumptions of the superiority of your cultural moment. What do you mean by that? Okay, Uh, if you take... uh, Man, I'm trying to finish up here. I know, we're we're a little over. I'm working, I'm working. Um, If you take... Two examples, Uh, excuse me, sex, the whole topic of sex and the biblical teaching of of, uh, moral teaching on sex in the scriptures and moral teaching in the scriptures on forgiveness. If you take those two things and you drop them in American culture today, we say, oh, 
The teaching on sex can't be trusted. I mean, come on. You can't. We're not really going to believe that stuff anymore. I mean, we are modern men and women, right? However, if you drop the whole idea of forgiveness, you know, forgive your brother 70 times 7. Oh, oh, that sounds merciful. Yeah, I mean, we're merciful people. Forgiveness is good. We all ought to forgive each other and just love each other and get along. Okay, we'll take that. Well, drop those two things in India or drop those two teachings in the Middle East. In the Middle East, they'll say, well, that teaching on sex is right on, maybe a little loose. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe a little promiscuous, all right? Uh, but the stuff on forgiveness, I'm not forgiving my brother. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, are you, are you kidding me? Do you know what he did to me? I mean, it's a very shame um, culture. So what, why do we think that our cultural moment, where we are, even in our city, where, why do we think that our cultural moment gets to dictate over the truth of God's Word while other people's cultural moment might disagree? And, and here's the thing. If you don't have a God that can speak to you in your cultural moment and resist you, it's probably not the true God. I mean, God is going to, God has no trouble resisting you or me. Zero. He is not moved by your fist and your anger. He is not moved by you saying, oh, you prude. Like, hey, (laughs) it's the truth. And then finally, you can trust the Bible personally. Man, I hate that um, we're where we are in our time here, but man, my first year of college was rough. Um, I felt like every professor were in cahoots with one another. And I think I've used the word cahoots twice in a sermon. I think this, uh, this, this is some record or something. But anyway, I felt like all my professors were in agreement with one another. Let's undermine the, the, you know, the whole thought that the Bible is the, you know, and Christianity has any relevance in academia. Uh, and I mean from every class, English, history, philosophy, just tearing at me, you know. And I could just see it in the classroom. Every Oh, yeah, I mean, the Bible, come on, you know, there's that smirk. And it really shook my foundation, and it made me really go deep into study and reading people um, like R.C. Sproul and John Frame and Francis Schaeffer and others. And yet what I found in that is when my, when my confidence in God's Word was waning, the intimacy that I felt with God, with God and His Son was waning too. Because there's a connection. And that's the whole point of this whole thing. That we, when Jesus was walking along the road, um, they said to each other, did, um, did our hearts not burn within us while we talked to us on the road when He opened to us the Scriptures? You see, the Scriptures are not just something to take in intellectually, but the very purpose of the Scriptures is to show us Jesus. Yesterday, my wife came home with a new rug, little rug, little, I don't know, three by whatever, for our kitchen. And she threw it down and she, she said, what do you think? Now folks, she doesn't really care what I think. It doesn't matter what I think. But we're married. We're in relationship. And you know why? I don't care what I think. Why? Because her taste, in my mind, is impeccable. Her, her understanding of color. I've got nothing on color. I don't get it. And so I'm submitting to her, but we're in relationship. 
And it's taken me years to get to that point of, man, my wife, if I trust her with house stuff, we're going to have a beautiful house. Jesus didn't just give us the Word. Jesus is the Word. And it's in. He is in the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you see, Christianity is not about a set of facts, even though it's factually true and we can come at it, and the smartest person can come at it, and the, the Scriptures are going to hold up. It has for a few thousand years. But dear friends, that's not the point. The point is to know the living Word, to be in relationship when He comes in and He begins to tell us, this is how you live your life. You, you, you don't just, oh man, you go, oh I know if I trust Him, my life's going to be more beautiful. Do you see it? That's the relationship. That's why it's important that we fight for the Word. Not that we can be right but so that we can be in relationship with Jesus. Jesus wants us to come. If you're not in relationship with God and wrestling with Him, because that's what I had to do that freshman year of college, I had to wrestle with God. God, if you're real, you've got to make me believe this. You've got to prove it to me. And God said, I want to, my son. I want to, my child. Come, bring your skepticism. Bring your questions. Just walk with me. Trust me. And over time, He proved Himself true through His Word. And you know what happened? My heart was full of Him. And that's the point of the Scriptures. And that's why we must start. Because He is the point. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. He went from Moses and he said, all right, let's start over here. Let's look at, uh, I don't know, let's look at, um, you know, um, the Passover. Well, it's not about lambs, but I am the lamb of the world. And I've been slain from the foundation of the world. Do you see it? And can you, oh man, what it would have been like to be on that road. And then he went to the, you know, the, the, the Exodus. He went to the Red Sea and he said, you know, you thought that was deliverance. Oh man, oh man. Do you know what just happened? I died and now I'm alive. And when you die, you're going to be alive too. And the whole world is going to be made new. Why? Because I went into the ground and now I'm standing before you talking with you along the road. Whoa, what a conversation that must have been. And then their eyes were open to Him and their hearts began to burn. Dear friends, is your heart burning for Jesus? Go to the Scriptures. Go to the Scriptures with your doubt and your skepticism. Go to the Scriptures with your heart and say, Show me. Reveal yourself to me. I want your life in me. So teach me. Train me. Help me to think rightly about my life. Help me to repent about the sin in my life. Convict me. Oppose me. Because I know you're doing it in love and for my good, not for my destruction. Oh, dear friends. May we go to God's Word and may we live under it. May we let it read us and judge us because it's only going to take us to the very heart of God that we might know the height and depth and length and breadth of His love for us in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Lord God, thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it's living. And God, we give our hearts to You now. Father, meet us in our minds. Convince us of Your truth that that truth might sink to our hearts, that we might be alive in Christ, full of His Word and full of Jesus. May we be a people known as people of the Word, that we might speak the truth in love. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.